and welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters. With your questers, Josh and Dan, I'm Dan. I am Josh. And on today's podcast, we will be discussing all things quizzical and horrifical, because we're going to talk about some more horrors, but after we get to some emails first. So if you have any questions for us, please drop us a line at edsgpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail, because we still like those. It's a fun engineering challenge to drop those little tracks into the into the recording software, but I don't care. I like the challenge. So bring them on. So our first email tonight comes from Joel. Hey guys, I'm not going to do a false British accent because I do not want to insult Joel. This is the British half of the Dread Council of Joels. The show is still great. Still always has been. And I've been catching back up after a few months of not listening. Sorry. On JB's question about pickpocket versus fast hand, the way I'd run it is something like this. Pickpocket and fast hand cross over a lot. I'd allow a character to make multiple pickpocket rolls to do the same overall effect, one per movement of object as fast hand. The advantage of fast hand is that it allows higher efficiency of actions and fewer points of failure as you only make one test. Any chance of more disciplines variants like the Ravager from Vasgothia, Sky Raider, Boat Raider, or the Boatman from Mystic Paths? Are there some you'd like to see? First off, I think that's a cool idea with regards to pickpocket and fast hands, where fast hand is basically kind of an upgrade to pickpocket that, as he says, is more efficient, allows fewer points of failure because fewer rolls are made. Although by the point you're high enough to get fast hand, your pickpockets might be pretty high and not be a big concern in terms of failure. But still, if you can speed things up, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. There may very well be other variants in the future. I don't know of any that are currently being developed. We are a lot more likely to, broadly speaking, do things either as paths or discipline variants rather than come up with an entirely new discipline because the flexibility that the talent option system allows makes it easier to swap out a couple of options or swap discipline talents around to make somebody focused a, a particular way without needing to create an entirely new discipline. Not to say that there might not be new disciplines that come out in the future, but it's a lot of work to make an entire discipline. Oh, yeah. um, it is not so much work to make a variant where you're just swapping a couple of talents around. It's a little bit more work to do a path, but paths have a particular role within the setting that isn't always suited to something that is just like a different way of approaching a common discipline. Fair. Long story short, I'm not aware of any that are currently in development and I don't have any ideas right off the top of my head for any that you'd like to see that I'd like to see. Yeah. Kind of going back to the adepts way with the different variants that were in there. Like you had the gallant Swordmaster versus the bladesman variant, as opposed to the straight Swordmaster, where they had some slightly different progressions in terms of their talent selections and whatnot. There's nothing specifically called out in the flavor text with regards to those, but those are both possible depending on how you select your talent options. If you're going with the more gallant style, then you're going to likely pick up more social talents as opposed to more combat-oriented ones. I don't know completely what's in store, so it is possible, but there's nothing specific that I'm aware of right now. Fair. His follow-up question is, which disciplines do you think have room for more variance within them? He has some ideas for this, like a single-weapon swordmaster that swaps second weapon out for momentum attack and gets something different in Warden when swordmaster gets a momentum attack. And actually, about half of his ideas are variant swordmasters based upon weapons. So, any discipline yeah. you think has more room? There, I think, is certainly room within the swordmaster to do variance for different fighting styles. As it kind of stands right now, the Swordmaster does end up leaning pretty heavily on the dual weapon fighting style 
just because of the talent selections that they get. And from a certain standpoint, the efficiency of attacks and damage that comes into play just from a numbers standpoint two size three weapons or a size three and a size two weapon are better overall in terms of your character's average damage output than a single size six two-handed weapon just because Mm -hmm. of the way that the that the damage scaling kind of works and you could also maybe do a variant where you have a sword master that does a sword and shield style yeah all of that is something that is generally more geared towards the warrior but where the disciplines are as much about the philosophy and approach as they are to the actual sort of talent progression i think there's a little bit of room in the swordmaster for that sort of thing i'm trying to think of some of the others Archer. I mean, Sky Raider, we already kind of have the the Raider variant from Vazgothia or whatever it's called, which is kind of like the Sky Raider, but not tied to the air. No, I mean, nothing else sort of immediately comes to mind. I think a lot of that comes down to philosophy and personality and doesn't necessarily need to have distinctive talent selections or progressions. In that regard, I don't know. Sure. I hadn't really thought about it too much. I'm kind of like running through the list and it doesn't seem to me that any of the magician disciplines really need variants because they're focused in a very different way. Air sailor, archer, you kind of have like whether the traditional bow or the crossbow, but that's sort of more of a philosophy or style thing. And it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily require any kind of talent differential. Yeah. Because the talents work the same regardless of the missile weapon you're using. Beastmaster, you kind of have the paths where you either have the animal companion or or the menagerie style Beastmaster, um, as opposed to the one that is more uh, kind of a solitary wild warrior kind of thing. And I don't know that there's necessarily a variant in space for that. Troubadour, I suppose in one sense you could have variants of the Troubadour that maybe focus on things aside from the more traditional like epic song and poetry kind of thing and going a, a bit more scholarly, but that's then where you get into things like the scholar path and whatnot. And I'm not sure the options for Troubadour are broad enough already that you can probably do that without too much effort. I don't know. <laughs> Fair. So how about some love for 1879? I'm happy to say I'm a writer for it and it's a great game. I think should get more love. I agree. Yes. Agreed. I know sort of the broad strokes. I have read through the core books. I run a couple of sessions of it, but I really don't know the game well enough to talk about it the way that I can talk about Earthdawn. So high level play. Could you discuss it a bit? Fourth edition handles it so much better than earlier editions. Sorry, Lou. As there is less redundant stuff. Archers getting many multi-attack talents and every other thing being used instead of missile weapons. We've just restarted an old campaign with characters who were 13th circle in 1st edition converted over to 4th edition. We have a mere 8 million legend points. How would you challenge PCs of this power level? My character is 13th circle swordmaster plus 10th circle troubadour, 9th circle air sailor, and a quester of Florenius. How would you avoid or deal with the way active characters with this power can disrupt the setting? Screw it, I don't like the new King of Thrill type thing. I will admit I don't have a lot of experience with Warden and Master tier play. All of the games that I have been involved with, even the ones that have gone on for a long time, have tended to end around sort of 8th or ninth circle. My thoughts on this are, are kind of given in the Earth on Companion, 4th edition, that kind of opening chapter, opening section where I'm talking about high-level play. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately what you need to do is be willing to let the characters change the setting. There are few enough of those characters and they are powerful enough that they could, in theory, make dramatic changes like that. I think you just need to remain true to what the consequences or fallout of such a thing would be. 
the kinds of problems I think that characters at that power level would face, you're talking at that point about the Superman problem, for lack of a better term. Oh, yeah. You've got Superman, a character in DC Comics who has incredible power and strength and is nigh invulnerable and can fly and has super strength and... And not a lot of weaknesses. And and not a whole lot in the way of weaknesses. And I think there are a lot of people that... I won't, I won't get into my Superman rant at this time. Anyway, the Superman problem being, how do you challenge a character like this? Yeah. You know, who, who, one who could conceivably inflict great change on the setting, on mm-hmm. the, the, the world that they exist in. And I think you need to challenge them with problems that they can't punch exactly. Mm-hmm. You could... If the player characters decided we don't like who the King of Thrall is, we're going to go and and remove them. That's great. But there's a whole kingdom of tens of thousands of people, let alone there are probably some high powered adepts in the service of the king that Mm -hmm. would maybe not be happy with that. Okay, they remove the king. What now? Are they going to put their own candidate on the throne? Is one of them going to assume the throne and kind of like a hostile takeover kind of situation? Are they going to hang around and politic for that person? Yeah, just... great. They've done that. But like, what are the consequences of that are now they are ruling a kingdom and they can't punch <laughs> all of their problems away. <laughs> they need to manage and govern and navigate the desires of thousands of citizens. Yeah. At that point, you're, you're talking about. Ultimately, you are kind of talking about a very different game. If that's not your thing, that's fine. There is nothing necessarily wrong with continuing in a similar vein where you're just kind of going up against bigger, nastier opposition, like some of the the more powerful named horrors or maybe some of the more powerful adversarial groups or dragons or something like that. It's difficult and... The moving parts involved with characters of that power are just, there are a lot of them. And I would tend to personally, maybe not necessarily look at combat as the big challenge. Obviously, you need to have combats. If you're going to have like sword masters and warriors and stuff, you need things for them to do. It's tough. And I don't have the experience to be more practical than to say, if they want to change the setting, if they want to make dramatic changes like that, yeah, they should be able to, to a certain extent. The changes that they want to make are going to have ripple effects and consequences that are not necessarily easy to deal with. And there will be other powerful individuals that might object to the changes that they are making to one extent or another. Yeah. And they would then need to deal with that. Violence in fantasy games, combat in fantasy games is a staple, but there comes a point where, you know, maybe you just can't punch the problems away. Further questions. Could we see some episodes going deep into the weeds on stuff like the differences between similar disciplines, Warrior, Swordmaster versus Skyraider, or maybe something going into how you you design the side quests around a thread item? Probably not so much on the first, because I feel like in the discipline episodes that we did, we kind of touched on the similarities between yeah. them. We hit, the, we hit the Venn diagram of all of them, yeah. Yeah, like we kind of had the, the Venn diagram a little bit. I mean, if there is like a specific topic that that people would want to do, like a specific question that somebody wanted to ask, then maybe I could do something like that. With regards to designing quests around a magic item, I don't know, maybe it's something where we could come up with an item or look at an item that has some stuff connected with it and maybe come up with some ideas or examples. But again, I always say, look at blades. We could take blades and like kind of go through that item and, and the adventures that are there and without necessarily getting into spoilers, but talk about the different adventures and how they tie into that or yeah. something like that. I don't know. It's an interesting idea. Yeah, not one okay. I had necessarily considered. No, but I think we, that's not bad. As we get to the point where we're starting to look for more. 
content subjects to more content more subjects to discuss <laughs> maybe that is something to, to pencil in on the list as an idea yeah, we can go through all the adventures one at a time who knows what's your favorite thread item from any edition i think mine is neoku's bow but i cannot work out how i'd handle the deed in any actual campaign yeah that, like the story of neoku's bow and the deed that you get at that super high rank nine or rank 10 thread or whatever it is where you need to give it away to someone and they can draw the power from your thread while they're using it and whatnot. It's a really cool story and a really cool legend and a really cool idea, but it does feel like one of those things that when you are looking at it from outside, from before that becomes part of the game, it seems really weird how that might come to be, but it also could be something that maybe with a, that you could use as inspiration for a different item if something like that kind of happens more organically in the course of play. You know, when you're looking at a thread item that maybe is growing a history as part of the campaign and is becoming a legendary item that maybe you're increasing the ranks beyond what it initially had, that yeah. maybe having campaign events like that inform its growth and development. I have a similar thing. It's like, oh, that's a really cool idea and a really cool story. But how would you make that work in a game? And I think it's something that would just be something that you would need to maybe look at organically with another item, something that's developing in the course of play and the story that develops between a character and their rival or something like that. Yeah. Rather than necessarily having it as a deed that you need to power up a specific item that you are looking at it as I'm going to sort of have this item grow in power later on in the campaign and oh this is the kind of event that might cause that to happen gosh favorite i i don't know that i have a a favorite thread item that i can think of off the top of my head i mean i'm not, certainly not anything in any of the published books i think probably one of the favorite thread items that i've ever come up with is a a thread collar that i made as a thread item for a beastmaster yeah like they're primary animal companion could wear it and as they wove threads it would actually enhance the animal companion it was kind of like a very early approach that i had towards having the companion grow and become more powerful as part of the the character's advancement which sort of folded into the ideas in fourth edition with the enhanced animal companion talent and stuff like that yeah so i really liked that as an idea especially the story that i had with it which did not make my wife happy at all it was made from the hide of a horror that the Beastmaster who fashioned it had slain. Hmm. And so, like, one of the top rank powers on it allowed the animal companion to have a pool of karma that they could draw from to enhance their abilities, kind of like horror karma. Yeah. But it also would make the animal companion look a little bit more monstrous and stuff like that because it was kind of like influencing slash cursing them uh, in the game that I ran. It never actually got woven up to that level. But when um, my wife found out about it, she did not like the idea that it was going to mess with her uh, with her kitty cat. <laughs> Fair. The favorite thread I've, I've come across actually came from Ardanian's Revenge. And it was the ear jewelry that lets you communicate with uh, somebody else who's wearing the same kind of ear jewelry. And so it worked like basically yeah, that's a nice a, one. Looked like a telephone. I was like, dude, that's my favorite one so far. What was the one? I think it was in um, Arcane Mysteries. Night Scar. Was that the name of it? Was it the sword that had the spirit in it? Yes. That I like that one. Yeah. I don't remember the specifics of it, but I remember it no. being a cool idea. Kind of like the Earth Dawn take on the intelligent weapon that basically you've got this sword that is enchanted with a spirit within it. And the spirit may or may not get along with the owner and can mm. cause problems as a result of that. I think it's a cool Earth Dawn flavored take on a yeah. classic idea. Mm -hmm. It's goofy as all get out, but the Mask of Ultion was always an interesting one because of the meta aspects. The character has to think of it as that, but never say it by name. And so yeah. the player needs to be very careful about when they're speaking in character or out of character. And if they're out of character, they have to refer to it as the Mask of Ultion. And yes. if they're in character, they can't say that. From a meta standpoint, it's like really kind of cool and, and tickles my brain in that way. But it is also a complete PETA. <laughs> yeah, a complete pain to deal with. Um, I also like the fact that it's 
got all of these kind of innocuous and subtle effects until the very last one, which allows you to call down a flame strike. And the reason given is that the guy who made it was just upset that the sword master kept wondering when he was going to make something useful. Yeah. My my only other favorite thread item was uh, my friend wrote a story for Earth Dawn as a submission uh, when third edition was going on. And he created this wonderful little story and his troubadour had a sword that had a flute as the handle of the okay, sword. Okay, yeah. And I had to stat that out and I had to create the powers that the sword could actually do, which explained everything he did in the story. So I had to go through the story one thing at a time and figure out what the sword would let him do. And so I put together like seven, eight ranks of, you know, powers cool. that the sword could actually do and so forth and so on. So that's my other favorite one. And that one was called Songblade. I'll send it to Josh if he wants to read it one of these days. I also like the sock of Granak. Oh, the sock is awesome. It's a weird little spontaneous magic item that Granak, the hero, was caught off guard while sleeping and ended up fighting a horror and killing it. And the the what involved there like enchanted the sock. And it, so it's got these powers associated with it. Yeah. I like the weird kind of offbeat, atypical kind of things. Yeah. I think uh, uh, Nelson Longears' Feather, isn't that a thread item? Uh, it might might be in one it of the, the Legends books. Yeah, that one as well. Literally half of this episode is going to be Josh uh, Joel's email. So this is the Joel this is the Joel episode. Uh, last and certainly not least from Joel. Yeah, what is your favorite unanswered mystery for Dan only? How would you answer it? We know that Josh would refuse in a quizzical manner because we all take his word as lore. Uh, my favorite unanswered mystery doesn't really exist anymore because Josh tells me off the air, and so I already get them all solved. So I'm good there. <laughs> I have, there's only one benefit of hosting this show with Josh and that's it. So I get the answers first. Otherwise, okay. On to Jonathan's email. Hello guys. Here's a simple question. Have you ever discussed during game designing to include rules to cover mental diseases or insanity? In a world as horror-esque as Earth Dawn, I think it could add a nice vibe. It has always been stated that the most powerful horrors are more mental than physical, but there's no ground rules for mental damages. For example... In the game I'm currently playing, PCs accumulate insanity points, and when they reach a certain threshold, they must check if they gain a mental disorder. Anyway, whether you discuss it or not, I'd like to know your thoughts about madness and the world of Earth on. Thanks, Jonathan. Can of worms? That's a whole bushel basket of worms. Yeah, that's a Pandora's box. That's not... Generally speaking, role-playing games do not have a great history of dealing with insanity and mental illness. I mean, it's something that dates back to the earliest games, Call of Cthulhu, for example, yeah. um, is well known for its sanity score. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you see a, a mythos creature or read a tome or whatever, you need to make a roll and possibly lose sanity. And one of yes. the jokes being that ultimately in Call of Cthulhu, it's a race to find out whether you die horribly or just go mad. Yeah, that's a 50-50 chance. The Palladium games... Palladium Fantasy riffs mm -hmm. and stuff like that had yeah. had derangements or madnesses or whatever they called them. Yeah. Vampire the Masquerade was well known for having uh, derangements and in fact an entire clan of vampires that was based around the idea of being mad. Chill had a list of phobias you, you yeah. have. Put mechanics behind the story. I understand the desire to put rules and mechanics into things in that regard, if it's sort of supposed to be maybe part of the genre or whatever. But the way that they have traditionally been handled and the things that are, especially in older games, listed as phobias or insanities or derangements uh, are not particularly great. Yeah. Especially as we have learned more over the years about how the brain works and, and things like that even though we've got a long way to go in that regard. The only game in my feeling that has come close to handling sanity or madness well is uh, Greg Stolze's Unknown Armies, hmm. where there are actually a series of different madness meters for the different sort of categories of, of horror uh, that you might encounter. There's like isolation, violence, the unnatural, and a couple of others. 
they're rated on a scale of like zero to 10, with zero being the worst. If you are at zero, you no longer have that. And a sort of progression on that meter of things that that might trigger a check on that meter. For violence, like if you like a level 10 is, you know, getting punched in the nose, whereas mm-hmm. like, you know, level four is, you know, like kind of almost serial killer level kind of stuff. What happens is that if you fail a test, you've you've got like failed notches and hardened notches. And if you get too hardened, then it affects like the other rules in terms of your ability to maybe use some of your stuff or to be able to like flip flop rolls, which is one of the mechanics in, in unknown armies. And if you get down to zero, then you are not affected by that at all. That is very like people react badly to you, like they can sense that you are off because it is kind of a complex system in terms of what it's modeling. It is kind of the closest in some regards or it handles things well because there are the different categories. I don't like the idea of there being a sanity meter or or madness track or something like that for Earth Dawn. I, you know, I talk about the horrors being the more powerful ones, especially the smarter ones being psychological and, and damaging and so forth in that regard. But I don't like the idea of having that be something that is mechanized within the game system because of the ultimately sort of positive heroic fantasy vibe, that it be something that is there in the setting and that... If it is something that you want to have the characters, the player characters be affected by in some way, that it be approached as a role playing and kind of open discussion sort of thing, as opposed to, oh, you failed a role and now you have a fear of heights. Yeah. I don't like it as as an idea in general, and so haven't really given a lot of thought to how you might do it. I think the the closest sort of thing that is in the game are sort of the the corruption points, which is affected and and the result of some horror powers that go into play. And so you could use that potentially as a rough guide to how mad or how broken somebody is from a mental standpoint. Yeah. But have that be something that is again, sort of played out as a role-playing thing rather than a dice roll mechanistic kind of situation. Just because there's a lot of negative stigma and bad information and awful media portrayals that are out there, I, I am reluctant to embrace the idea of using madness or mental illness as a, a source of fun or entertainment. Fair. I also think it's more to allow the R-O-L-E playing. Let you and the player or you and the game master, whoever, whatever side of the screen you're on, figure out what that's going to be. Have a discussion about it versus just, well, this is your new number. Roll against that. Because that's just that's just more uh, resource management and dice keeping track of things and a number to roll against. But let's put more R-O-L-E playing involved in this. That's what the hobby is called. Yeah, but I mean, even in that regard, I understand what you're getting at. And it's just mental illness and insanity. While in the case of the horrors, it is kind of like approaching it from a old style medieval mindset where somebody who is afflicted with mental illness maybe is in this case, like sort of literally being tortured by demons. Yeah. It should evoke pity it should evoke concern. Like these are broken people. Mm-hmm. These are individuals who are damaged and in pain. Need help. And need help. If you want the player characters to kind of explore that, that's great. But I think it's something that very definitely needs to be handled from a uh, session zero, open discussion, regular communication safety tools kind of situation because you don't necessarily know what your players 
may have experience, either personal or in their families or whatever, in terms of dealing with that sort of thing, because of the stigma and the lack of openness and discussion about it, that it could be a very uncomfortable kind of situation. Fair. All right. On to the last email from Tanner. Josh and Dan, first and foremost, thank you for everything you are doing and creating. I absolutely love the podcast, despite only being about halfway through the episodes at the point of writing this. It's served to be the springboard for a handful of ideas that I've had for an upcoming Earth Dawn campaign I'm using to introduce members of my gaming group to the system, where all but two of them have never played before, and has helped me sort out a few of the more persnickety topics I've come across so far. That all being said, my question is in regard to the rule books themselves. When we purchase our copies, we can pick either a PDF, a physical copy, or both. And for the few books I have so far, I've opted to get both because of course I did. It's easier to haul a PDF some days and it supports a game I love, you know? Anyway, I've had some issues during the digital copies, using the digital copies due to a medical condition I've had. It's hard to explain, but it basically amounts to never ending migraine. And it got me thinking, are there any plans for, or would it be outlandish to request alternate versions of the PDFs or ones with accessibility features? I've tried using various readers with dark modes or inverters, but the pages themselves seem unaffected by these tactics on all the devices I own, PC, laptop, mobile. What comes to mind immediately as a solution would be similar to what a friend did for one of his homebrew world books based off of the Pathfinder system. Talk about the turning timing on this topic, laugh out loud, where he distributed it the standard way to the group and then did one with a gray background and a brown or yellow font to mute everything for me. I can see where this might be a very niche and plausibly complicated, for many reasons, ask. And that's okay. Prior to things developing in my world, I adored living like a troll in the dark with the sweet, sweet glow of monitors to entertain me in the night. But today is different, and you have to ask today's questions sometimes, you know? I hope the year comes with as much grace as possible for the both of you, and thank you for your time. Sincerely, Tanner. Thank you, Tanner. First, thank you, Tanner. I don't know when you're actually going to hear this answer. (laughs) It depends on how quickly you go through, or maybe if you jump ahead and listen to this episode knowing that you sent the email. I actually appreciate that, and I have given some thought to accessibility for the electronic versions of the books, and it is something that I have become more aware of over the last few years as people have been talking about such things and and making the subjects known and discussing their needs and desires and whatnot. I think even as a quote-unquote niche product, I think it is worthwhile to make products accessible to a wider variety of readers, of customers, of players, or whatever. That said, I am the one that is currently doing layout on the Earthdawn books, and I have not really had much of a chance to explore the full range of options available when it comes to making the books more accessible. Because I'm sort of like self-taught when it comes to doing the layout and the various options that are available, I haven't like dug into the guts of things and to figure out a way, for example, to maybe have the the background image on the the page, right, in the PDF that's kind of like the the textured papery kind of thing that's on there right now, to have that be a layer that could be turned off, for example, to just have one file that maybe would have that as an option. And Again, with PDFs, one of the problems that you potentially run into is that options that work, say, on Adobe Acrobat Reader, Mm -hmm. the standard that, you know, is supposed to be able to take care of all the options there, are not necessarily usable or accessible through other readers. There's also a possibility of having things put out in other formats, not just in PDF, but maybe to have an EPUB version, which is a more traditional ebook, which allows the user to kind of set their own font size and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, again, that's not something that I have explored in great length to figure out how to make that work. 
I, I appreciate the question. I think it is a good one and a good suggestion. And it's a matter of figuring out how to do things and having the available time to do that. If anybody does have some ideas on how to maybe approach that, send me an email, um, contact me and let me know, have have some insights onto that, because that would certainly be helpful. You know, one of the drawbacks is that, you know, maybe we should set aside a little bit of a budget to get a consultant, you know, an accessibility consultant or somebody like that to, to come in who might know how that those sorts of things work. Fair. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I think it's it's a great idea. And one that has sort of been in my brain for a little bit and just not been able to focus on because it's been kind of needing to move from one project to another and needing to get things out by deadlines or by not too far past their deadlines, (laughs) um, rather than having the time to do all of the work necessary. Thank you, emailers. So if you do have suggestions, please drop us a line at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. Josh gets a hold of those first. So by all means, if you have suggestions about that accessibility, send them there. So on to our horrifical part of the con- of the show today. Uh, emails took up a, a large chunk, but we don't care about that. That's fine. We want to hear from you uh, listeners. So the horror we're going to talk about today is joy. And joy is interesting I mean, all the horrors are interesting, so that's enough said there. Um, the essay comes from a doctor bone setter. So it comes from a doctor, otherwise in Earth on Parlance, known as a bone setter. So I love the fact that doctor is not exactly a word, but bone setter was kind of a neat little thing to come across as far as that was concerned for me in the, in the essay. But the author of the essay is not sure if Joy is a horror or is a tainted servant of Vestrial, which I find an interesting little... Uh, thing to throw in there, but Joy prefers isolated villages to either appear as a wandering minstrel, a village idiot, or just a blonde child. And its true shape is kind of a man-sized beast uh, with a very thick hide and wicked claws. I know, generic enough, but that's what your imagination is for, is to figure out what exactly that looks like. And Joy prefers to avoid combat but we'll fight if necessary, as all horrors will do. Thoughts on Joy, Josh? <laughs> yeah, Joy is a horror that likes infiltrating isolated communities. Yeah. In disguise, whether that is as a simple peddler or traveler or whatever, or the, you know, the the child. Yeah. Making themselves welcome in a sense in the community even communities that are more isolated and and perhaps a little more reluctant or fearful of strangers places where you might more traditionally see the kind of ritual of greeting and spend some time observing and learning about the community and the relationships and things like that and starting off by actually becoming welcome in the community by making good things happen by seeming to be a positive omen or a blessing or something like that, that life is a little bit easier for those hard scrabble subsistence communities out in the hinterlands. Yeah. Then gradually what the horror does is use a unique power that it has called pervert emotion. Yes, pervert emotion. It starts to shift people's perception of things to pervert or twist the way that they feel about stuff so that things that normally would be painful or depressing or sorrowful get seen as positive, as happy, as good enjoyable or or joyful in a way twisting their perspectives on things so that when it gets sort of most protracted when it gets most severe that people are intentionally harming themselves because it feels good yeah part of the story that's in the essay this physician this this bone setter yeah goes to visit a patient who had a broken leg and should not be up and walking around on it 
but is because of the the pain of the bone the of the fractured bone grinding against itself yeah. in her leg makes her feel good and that's sort of like the first clue that things aren't quite right exactly you know then then this other person he comes home comes home and finds out that his this other person this child or or whatever has a knife and is carving designs into their arm and laughing at the the jewels of blood that are kind of welling up from that. And just like a really slow, insidious, creepy sense of things not being right mm-hmm. in kind of the, the most subtle psychological horror sense that things are not lining up with the way that they should be. Yeah eventually bringing the village or the community to destruction as the various members inflict harm on each other, thinking that they are doing good or enjoying the sensations and things like that. And then, you know, once it had its fun wandering off and and finding another isolated community. Yeah doing it all over again. If it gets discovered, it doesn't like, it's not like super tough in in the scale of named horrors that we're talking about here. It is not a a very difficult opponent, but for say journeymen, like lower journeymen or or mid journeyman level characters will be powerful enough that it can probably escape and go on disguise itself and continue doing this, you know, in addition to its pervert emotion power, um, Mm -hmm. it's got terror, it's got corrupt karma. Both of those are pretty severely incapacitating powers that, that a horror can bring to bear terror, of course, imposing penalties on all of your, your action tests, corrupt karma, preventing you from being able to enhance your roles with karma. Yeah. Decent physical attacks, but just generally is sort of a, oh, I've been discovered. Oh, well, I've had my fun. I am now going to flee and move off to somewhere else and continue to deal with this. Yeah. There are two stories that remind me of Joy, one of which is the Ray Bradbury, Something Wicked This Way Comes. And the other one is... More recent, not terribly, uh, Stephen King's Needful Things. Well, yeah, we're actually going to come back to that story a little bit later in this series, (laughs) because I think there is a horror that is a lot more directly influenced by that novel. Fair. But I figured this is at least similar. Yeah. Goes into the community, corrupts it, and then leaves. Basic premise. There, there is a little bit of a, of a difference between how things operate in Needful Things compared to Joy. Yeah. Which, again, we'll, we'll get into when we get to that horror. And people who are familiar with this book, I'm sure, know who we are talking about <laughs> if they're familiar with the novel at all. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring those up as a if you need if you needed a reference of some kind on how to infiltrate a community slowly, insidiously, without detection. There's two examples for you right there. Both of them made it into movies. You can digest them quickly. Well, the movie for Needful Things is is okay. Cast is great. The yeah, <laughs> the cast is solid, but it <laughs> runs into the problem that nearly all the Stephen King film adaptations do, which is that the book is a lot larger and has a lot more internal nuance monologue. and detail and internal yeah. character stuff that's going on that can't necessarily be conveyed on on the screen so well. Agreed. So had to bring them up. Joy can be one of those horrors that's good for a mid-tier campaign. I talked about like being maybe appropriate for like a, a journeyman challenge. And if it's something that you're looking at as being a, a long-term potential adversary, that it could be something that characters start encountering. It's after math. It's after effects in their earlier circles. They can come across a community where... It has had its way and they come across the aftermath and need to figure out what's going on and perhaps track it down. Yeah. Of course, one of the potential issues is that they could be at the place where it is 
mm-hmm. and not know it and fall under its influence as well. Yeah. To get back to one of the emails, if you want to talk about sort of madness and whatnot, mm-hmm. here you've got a power that manipulates the character's emotions and the way that they feel about things. Like we talked about with some of the other horrors, you know, you need to have that trust. You need to have that relationship between the players and the GM where they are willing to put themselves into that kind of situation to put themselves in that kind of scenario and to play fair with it, to be, to be real with it. Yeah. There are mechanics in the horrors book about how you might notice that your emotions are being perverted. And if you succeed at the test, then you may become aware of it. But if that you are failing that test, even if you as the player kind of know what's going on on some level that the character doesn't and you remain true to the character's knowledge and and the decisions and the reactions that they might have. And even if the player characters themselves aren't necessarily being affected by the, the horror's abilities, you've got a community that has become accustomed to this kind of shift that's going on and their perception of the positive effects that this foundling child or this wandering minstrel or whatever has made in their community, they might not be willing to let it be dealt with. And that brings a, a, a different kind of challenge into the situation because these are innocent victims being affected by this creature. Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to like a more traditional horror cult where they are like servants of Virgigorm worshiping the horror or whatever. Mm-hmm. These are innocent victims. How do you deal with them? How do you cope with a community and believes that they are doing right by throwing themselves in front of these adepts to protect what they see as as a fellow innocent or a good omen or or positive situation. That brings a sort of moral quandary into things that can make for a very interesting situation or scenario. I agree. So I think this is this is a fun one you could almost build an entire campaign out of two or three adventures, you get to the town, notice something is wrong, or you get to the town, have to come back to the town and finally notice something's wrong from the first time you were there. And so you could, you could string this out for a little while. Cause again, a horror like this, like most of the named horrors recovering in this whole section should be a long drawn out mystery to solve and a resolution at the end. Yeah. And not necessarily a full campaign level opponent, but one that is perhaps focus of an arc of, of a few adventures or sessions or something like that. And where something, somebody like joy really comes into strength is if you are really trying to play with that unnatural, unsettling situation where something feels off at first, but it takes time for the player characters and maybe even the players to completely pick up on what's going on. If you are a GM who really likes kind of playing with that unsettling feeling creepy vibe, yeah, that kind of creepy vibe, then joy might, might be one to look at. There's not necessarily a lot of the weird warped physical corruption that you see with undead monstrosities or, or that kind of stuff. This is really a very subtle, patient, emotionally manipulating horror. Agreed. Uh, yeah, this I, I found reading about joy, and of course, it's the I- irony that it's named joy, but spelled J O I E, and it's a horror named joy. So that's just the irony of it, and I like that aspect. <laughs> its natural form being this kind of like normal person sized, maybe a little like, you know, tough hide, maybe slightly scaly Mm -hmm. kind of claws on its fingers. But it also has this incredibly wide, like unnaturally wide grin. Yeah, I I really like the um, the the Joel Bisque piece. Mm -hmm. uh, That's the sort of the second the second depiction of the horror in the horrors book, the one that's on page 40 where it's got like the one claw that's got like the, the oh, yeah. puppet strings holding the person, yeah, the, mar- the, the marionette strings. and the yeah. other ones, like the, the people falling out and just like this big 
wide, like it feels kind of like, uh, like, um, almost like a, a Ren and Stimpy style kind of like exaggerated facial animation kind of situation. This, honestly enough, if you've read the comic book Spawn from Todd McFarlane, this reminds me yes, of Violator. The, the, the Violator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's There's a deep pull for you on that one. Sorry. Or um, the kind of thing that you would see in, um, pull an even, an even deeper cut, from uh, Jonan Vasquez, uh, known better for Invader Zim, but oh, his yes. one of his earlier works, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac. I love those. Yes, this also feels very, <laughs> very Johnny in terms of its totally art depiction, in terms of its style. Yeah, and there's actually one of the color plates in the book as well is of joy. Right, you are not wrong. That one, I I, I like that one even better. Yeah, it's got a red, it's got a red face and gray body. It's got kind of like the, almost like the face has like this blood splatter across it. Yeah, no, that's a Jeff Miracola piece, and uh, Jeff Jeff does good work. I love that one. Need to change my icon on Discord to that one of these days. <laughs> so no, I think uh, there are many ways to use joy. It's kind of laid out very, I, I can't say simplistically, but it's just joy is a very simple horror. It likes to infiltrate small communities. It does so in very few ways. And its one power is unique to itself. So that's kind of like slow pitch softball. Easy to get to, easy to use. It's laid out for you in that fashion as to how to introduce it almost and how to play with it if you're running the game. And kind of how to use joy. And whatever Josh didn't answer for you and I didn't answer for you is laid out in the book. So really pretty straightforward on how to use joy in any campaign. Yeah. So until next time, folks, uh, go find some joy for your legend. (laughs) Good night, everybody. (laughs) 